Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. On the science revolution this week, what can we learn from a 17% drop in greenhouse gas emissions during the coronavirus? The president of Mercy for Animals, Leah Garces, drops by about the millions of animals that will be culled by suffocation, drowning, and shooting. She's concerned about the inhumane way we're dealing with the closure of meat plants, and so am I. Author and Professor Seth Abramson is here about why Trump says he's taking dangerous drugs during the pandemic and how much money he might be making doing it. The Sierra Club's Ben Cushing is talking to me about the banks being under fire for fossil fuel financing. When will it end? Tune in. Greenhouse gas emissions have dropped a staggering 17 percent. You know, Louise and I walking along the Columbia River and see the big sky there. You know, no skyscrapers and stuff around us, just the river. Not a single contrail and not a single vapor trail, jet trail in the sky. A couple days ago we were walking, there was one. There was one vapor trail way up in the sky. And normally, you know, the sky's just crisscrossed with them. And obviously it's not just jet travel. It's, you know, factories shutting down. It's just all kinds of things. A remarkable study it was just published in Nature Climate Change, uh, in fact, the day before yesterday. They looked at 69 countries that account for 85% of the world's population and 97% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. They said that there was a decline of over 1,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide through the end of April. They could identify what was causing this. Aviation saw a 60% drop, cars 36% drop. Residential heating actually went up slightly, but only climbed by 3%. Power overall dropped by 7%, industrial power by 17%. Now, this is not likely to last. The world is kind of putting itself back together, but I think that we can probably reasonably assume that there will be another wave of virus deaths, and then there will be another wave of people kind of backing off, and it's gonna take a couple of years to get through this, at least until there's a vaccine or anything like this. By contrast, the International Energy Agency reported that emissions leveled off late 2019, but they're actually dropping now. And, you know, this is consequential. The UN Annual Emissions Gap Report said that global greenhouse gas emissions need to be cut by 7.6% per year in order to prevent disaster. And we are looking right now at a 17% cut, but it's not going to hold. So the question is, how much of a cut is going to come about as a consequence of the coronavirus infections all around the world? And then how sustainable is that cut? What lessons will we learn from this coronavirus experience, from the the experience of sheltering in place, from the experience of working from home and not having to commute to work? And which, by the way, it looks like it's going to be a a more or less permanent long-term trend. Is the, the roughly 20% of small and medium-sized businesses that probably will never reopen, perhaps as many as 40% of restaurants, 
and some other types of very small businesses may never reopen. To what extent are they going to be simply absorbed by the blob, you know, by the giant monopolistic corporations that I, I write about in my book, The Hidden History of Monopolies? Or is this opening a space for new companies to come in and, you know, like weeds through the cracks in the concrete, start new life? And if so, will it be new life that is done in a more sustainable way where the people, you know, who are working are working from home, where there's less of a carbon footprint? These are all really big questions. And one of the very simple and straightforward solutions to them, and, and this is like a, a real buzz in Europe right now, and China is moving in this direction very aggressively, but the, in the United States, it's become kind of an object of ridicule, tragically, at least among the cons, is that we might be able to rebuild the United States using green technology, rebuild the country in a green way, rebuild the country in a way that uses less energy and that uses more renewable energies and, and gradually weans us off fossil fuels. And in that context, this is a great opportunity if we were to do that. We've had since the Reagan administration, basically, you know, Reagan cut taxes dramatically, cut revenues to the federal government, and then stopped doing things like building new schools and maintaining roads and, uh, you know, rebuilding bridges and, you know, maintaining transportation and communications infrastructure. And as a consequence of that, we're not just rebuilding now as we, as we go into this next era. We're not just rebuilding from the coronavirus destruction the economic and infrastructure destruction caused by that. We're also rebuilding from the Reaganism destruction. We've had, you know, this year, it's a 40-year, or next year, early next year, it'll be a 40-year experience with Reaganism, experiment with Reaganism. And the experiment's done, in my opinion. You know, it's been a disaster. The rich have got obscenely rich. They've gotten morbidly rich. And the middle class has gotten wiped out. It's actually shrunk. American family, we've seen a transfer of at least $7 trillion in the last 40 years from the bottom half of America to the top 5% of America. And, you know, time to redo it, right? Time to restart it. Well, how about a Green New Deal? How about putting the country back together in ways that will sustain this 17% drop in emissions? And in fact, add to it, you know, make the drop in emissions even greater. We can do this. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is Leah Garces, the president of Mercy for Animals. Mercyforanimals.org is the website. Twitter handle is Mercy for Animals or Leah, L-E-A-H underscore Garces, G-A-R-C-E-S. Welcome to the program and thank you for joining us today. I see this article, millions of U.S. farm animals to be culled by suffocation, drowning, and shooting. And I think most people think that this is really a story about how the coronavirus is disrupting our supply chains and people getting it in meatpacking plants are slowing down the rate at which they can move animals through this factory farm system. But I see this, and I'm guessing you do, as more of an indictment of the way that we are producing our food supply than it is. Your thoughts on this, Leah? 
factory farming and these industrial slaughterhouses are being exposed. It's like the emperor has no clothes and they're being exposed as a vulnerable system that treats both workers as expendable and farmed animals as something to be thrown away. So what's happening across the country right now is workers are standing shoulder to shoulder while the rest of us are six feet apart. So it's no surprise these are becoming these are becoming hotspots for COVID-19. And the pandemic is also severely affecting animals. So as the slaughter plants shut down due to worker shortages, there's this backlog of millions of animals who are supposed to be slaughtered. The result is millions of them instead are being slaughtered in farm in these horrific ways and then thrown away like they're trash. Wow. This is front and center right now. But if you talk to people who live in the communities where these giant factory farms are located, you find that pigs are no longer pooping like normal. Instead, it's just continuous diarrhea and you get these giant pools, these lagoons of of waste. The same thing with cows um, that is actually toxic and is contaminating groundwater and is making the air stink miles away, destroying property values communities trying to push back against it. We're not going to flush eating meat out of our culture any day soon, although you know we can all work to minimize it as much as possible. But is a return to small farms, I mean, basically banning factory farms, is that one solution? How do we, how do we deal with this? Yeah, it's a hard problem to solve, but a lot of people are trying to solve it now, and there's a lot of motivation to solve it now that it, it is exposed as this really horrific system. And as you said, as you're pointing out, it's highlighted right now, but the problems of pollution, worker abuse, animal abuse, it's really benefiting so few people. And that has been going on for decades. So it feels like the whole issue has really come to a head right now. And we have some opportunities for the first time in my career to really reform this system. And there's a couple ways to do that. One is through some of these COVID-19 relief packages that are coming out. And what we're really advocating for is money shouldn't go into just propping up a bad system, propping up a system that's, as you said, polluting communities, that's hurting workers, that's hurting animals. Instead, those relief packages that are coming out really need to think about reforming a broken food system. My wife, you know, we grew up in the 1950s as children. Her mother grew up on a farm in central Michigan. It was a grandmother's farm, and she used to go to the farm as a little kid. And it was a 100-acre farm, and they were pretty much self-sufficient. They had a couple of cows, and they had you know, chickens and stuff like that. But they literally ate what they grew, and they treated their animals well, you know, as well as a food animal can be treated, I suppose, and slaughtered them in ways that they could live with, that were as painless as possible for the animals. <laughs> My wife and her brother used to name the animals, which made her grandmother crazy. But back then, I don't believe there were factory farms. I mean, you said this is just a moment ago, you said this has been going on for decades. Isn't this whole factory farm thing, industrial agriculture, using massive amounts of antibiotics and, and uh, you know, injecting them with hormones and stuff, isn't this all really recent? This really has come about in the last 40 years? Or, or did I just not notice them back in the 1950s and 60s? No, you're right. Factory farming as a methodology of creating protein was was really created after World War II and there were food shortages. So there was a bunch of subsidies created and incentives for consolidating in this way. But it, it sort of blew up and 
the particularly the the pig industry and the chicken industry consolidated into this monopoly in our food system. And so you have a lot of the farmers, for example, in the chicken industry are living in complete debt. They're basically indentured servants and they can't get out from under the thumb of big meat. And you can't have those small farms as easily. You can't just walk up to a slaughterhouse and bring your chickens. You can't to be contracted. Right. Would that have been back in the 1980s when Ronald Reagan suspended in 83, he suspended enforcement of the Sherman Antitrust Act. The result of that was these big ag companies were manipulating prices and running small farmers out of business. That was the decade when my wife's grandmother sold her farm. In right. Fact. And you had Willie Nelson doing his farm aid concerts and things. Mm-hmm. And this was the birth of the major industrialization of food from animals, right? Yeah, you're remembering correctly. And it, it was accelerated at that point, but it still goes on. In fact, some of the big uh, chicken companies right now are being investigated for price fixing, where they're keeping the price <laughs> of chicken you know, at, at a high rate just so they can pocket more money. And there's there's a whole federal investigation going on into that right now. I mean, it continues. And this past month, we saw Trump issue an executive order just to force slaughterhouses to stay open. And what that executive order actually did is it shields meat companies from liability, where all these workers are getting sick and dying. They're now going to be protected. And that actually functioned right away. Smithfield had a lawsuit where workers were suing them over the illnesses and deaths that were being caused through through coronavirus, and the lawsuit was thrown out. And this is the, the, the corruptibility between, you know, it, it's a very serious thing where our protein production system, first of all, is so inefficient and puts so many people, so many animals in our environment at risk, and yet is propped up and supported and subsidized by our taxpayer dollar. And so we're fighting really, right. really hard at this moment because we feel like there's just, just this rare glimpse of hope where funds could instead go to reforming this broken food system. And we're particularly the HEROES Act, which is out for consideration right now. It it passed the House. It's going to the Senate now. Right now, the language includes repaying the industry for all of that horrible on-farm mass slaughter that we talked about at the beginning of this. And we think citizens around the country should be writing to their senators and say, that's outrageous. Taxpayers should not be paying for the industry to keep doing what it's doing in the way it's doing it in such a harmful way. Instead, they need to really hit reset on this on this system. It's time. It's time. Uh, you mentioned a lot of this is happening out of view. It's happening out of view because it's illegal to take pictures of a lot of these places. Are those laws changing? Some of them are getting worse. They're called ag-gag laws. It makes it illegal for us. It makes it a, you know, a jailable offense to take photos of abuse inside a factory farm. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, this is such a corrupt industry. It's, it's just mind-boggling. Leah Garces, president of Mercy for Animals, mercyforanimals.org, and Mercy for Animals, F-O-R, Animals is the Twitter handle. Thank you, Leah. On the line with us is the Harvard-educated attorney, professor at the University of New Hampshire, author of 11 books, including Proof of Conspiracy, Proof of Collusion, and his forthcoming book, which I believe you can pre-order wherever you find fine books, Proof of Corruption, Bribery, Impeachment, and Pandemic in the Age of Trump, Seth Abramson. Seth Abramson, S-E-T-H-A-B-R-A-M-S-O-N.net is his website, and you can tweet him at Seth Abramson. He's got a spectacularly 
active Twitter feed, really somebody worth following. Seth, welcome back to the program. It's been a while since we talked. You tweeted a couple days ago that when Trump started pushing hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, there was actually a reason beyond just his desire to distract us from his involvement in the Mike Pompeo inspector general scandal. Just to give your listeners sort of the brief timeline, President Trump begins pushing hydroxychloroquine in March of 2020 alongside the antibiotic azithromycin, and prescriptions for the drug jumped 46 times immediately after that, according to the New York Times. We had our first... 4,600%. That's correct. And we had our first person dying from taking chloroquine shortly after the president pushed that drug. A man in Arizona took chloroquine phosphate, He died. His wife was hospitalized. His wife said that they were guided by Trump. So right away, the problems with someone who's not a medical doctor giving that sort of advice were evident in the data and in the actual results in terms of mortality. But what you're referring to comes in early April when we learned that Bernard Marcus, a Trump mega donor who's co-founder of the Job Creators Network, he calls on Trump publicly to, quote unquote, cut the red tape on hydroxychloroquine. We don't know if he had spoken previously to Trump about it or not in March or in April or thereafter. But we do know that Bernard Marcus had already announced by that point that he would spend a big part of his fortune. He is mega rich to reelect Donald Trump. We also I just want to note, because I didn't say this in my tweet online, that we learned the next day from MarketWatch that Donald Trump has a, quote unquote, more than modest sum invested in the French drug maker that makes the brand name version of hydroxychloroquine. It was after that point that we had all these studies showing it was dangerous, caused heart problems, caused death, had no therapeutic value for people with COVID-19. And it was after that point that Rick Bright was removed from his post for opposing the expansion of the hydroxychloroquine push in the Trump administration. And somehow after all this happens, in early May, Donald Trump starts taking the drug and decides to tell the country that he's taking it just recently, knowing all the dangers, knowing all the conflicts of interest, knowing that death has already been caused by this, knowing that there could be a drug shortage because of his public statement. It's an astoundingly irresponsible action by the president of the United States. This whole question of America surviving the destruction of our government, Donald Trump took a rather major step yesterday with an executive order basically telling every regulatory agency in Washington, D.C., that they can just basically stop enforcing the rules if they think that that will produce an economic benefit, a.k.a. profits for corporations. I read a few weeks ago that there was evidence that three different Trump family foundations, you know, the the Trump company is an accumulation of hundreds of smaller companies, and they kind of play this shell game, moving money around to minimize taxes and things, and apparently screw investors if you look at how he ran his, his casinos that three different Trump family foundations were invested in, I believe it was Sanofil, the French company that makes Plaquenil, if I have that right, the brand name yes. version of hydrochloroquine. Has that been verified? It is verified, yes, that he has more than a modest sum invested in a fund that he may not directly control, but he's aware that his economic fortunes are tied to some degree with that French drug maker that makes Plaquenil. That's correct. Now, there's also a story about Laura Ingram going to the White House, bringing some doctor, some MD with her, who is a big fan of chloroquine, 
and doing a PowerPoint presentation, a private PowerPoint presentation for Trump and maybe a few other people, I, I don't know who is in the room, pitching the idea that not only is this a treatment for COVID-19, but it can actually prevent you from getting COVID-19. That seems like, I mean, he's a very gullible guy, right? He sees something on Fox News, regardless of the source, he immediately starts tweeting and talking about it. And very often there are things that are, frankly, humiliating to him. They're so wrong or so stupid. What's the old saying? You know, uh, the easiest person to sell something to is a salesman. I mean, is it possible that this is just a case of, you know, Laura and her friends over at Fox thought they had something? Maybe, you know, without a financial motive, you know, everybody at that point was looking for a magic bullet so that we could all get back to work. And if we get sick, we could just pop a pill that this was just, you know, wishful thinking on steroids rather than some sort of an elaborate grift in order to increase the wealth of one of Donald Trump's investment funds. Well, I certainly don't want to put aside the possibility that there were people who were within Donald Trump's inner circle who, for the best of intentions, believed that, though granted without any medical evidence whatsoever, believed that this could have a therapeutic effect or something even beyond that. Certainly there's a history with this president of making phone calls to people who don't have expertise in what he asks them to advise him on, making presentations to him despite not having expertise, and doing all of that in the face of ignoring those who do have the expertise. But I think, Tom, the reason I have this concern about this Trump megadonor is if you know that someone who is a megadonor to your campaign, who has said he will spend part of his fortune to reelect you, can make millions, uh. possibly hundreds of millions of dollars, then where do you think that money is going to end up? It'll end up in your campaign through donations from that person. And that's the concern that you have, is that on the other hand, he might expect to see that money effectively laundered through sort of regular course of business, super PAC donations from that individual or his operation, the Job Creators Network. Amazing. So this gets down to basically an election grift more than a financial grift astonishing. We're talking with Seth Abramson, the uh, professor at the University of New Hampshire, author of 11 books, his most recent or his newest one is coming out soon, Proof of Corruption. Confirm for me that I can pre-order this, uh, you know, at, at Powell's Books or Amazon or wherever I might want to. It's out in September. And can you let us know just a couple of examples of proof of corruption on the part of Trump? So you can pre-order the book, you're correct, anywhere that you can order books. And what the book essentially is, it's a massive 525-page book that lays out seven separate Trump bribery scandals. And that includes China, Turkey, Venezuela, his actions in Ukraine, of course, but also these bribery scandals, two of them connected to COVID-19, the one that we've been talking about, and also the fact that he received intelligence about COVID-19 in November 2019, we know this from ABC News and the Times of Israel, he did not take action. He would not hear any bad word said about uh, Xi Jinping. And this was at a time that Xi Jinping, we know from the Financial Times, had given dirt on Joe Biden to Michael Pillsbury, Trump's trade representative in China. So you have a transaction between Trump and the Chinese government at a time that he refuses to hear intelligence about China not being transparent in November 2019 and December 2019 about COVID-19. So that's one example. But what I lay out in my tweets is, frankly, the most upsetting of these is Donald Trump's business interests in Turkey and how they affected his willingness to allow Turkey to invade Syria and commit genocide against our allies, the Kurds. It was clearly motivated, and I laid this out in the book, by his business interests. That's mind-boggling. 
And let's not forget Michael Flynn had taken a half million bucks from Turkey. He was an agent for Turkey when he was Trump's national security advisor. Seth Abramson, A-B-R-A-M-S-O-N.net is the website. And of course, his new book, Proof of Corruption, available wherever fine books are available. Seth, thanks so much for dropping by today. Great talking with you. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know, I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think it's the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Natural CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com. That's NUleafnaturals.com and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM. It's spelled T H O M. Go to NULeafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NULeafnaturals.com. That's NULeafnaturals.com. That's NULeafnaturals.com. Code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. NULeafnaturals.com. So the fossil fuel industry seems hell-bent for leather on extracting every single dollar out of what they've got in the ground and every single dollar out of us and to hell with the planet as long as there's riches to be made and the banksters are gung-ho to help them. Ben Cushing is on the line with us. He's a campaigner with Beyond Dirty Fuels campaign of the Sierra Club. SierraClub.org, of course, is the website. Ben's Twitter handle, Sierra Club, of course, at Sierra Club. But Ben's is BM Cushing, C-U-S-H-I-N-G. Ben, welcome to the program. J.P. Morgan Chase? Yeah, J.P. Morgan Chase is the world's largest funder of fossil fuels. The Sierra Club and our partners put out an annual scorecard every year called the Banking on Climate Change Report. And year after year, it has shown that J.P. Morgan Chase far outpaces all other commercial banks in the world in its financing of the coal, oil, and gas industries, which makes it one of the primary drivers of the climate crisis. Now, this is the bank whose CEO is Jamie Dimon, right? Am I remembering correctly? Exactly. Yeah. Jamie Dimon, the CEO. Notably this week, J.P. Morgan Chase just held its annual shareholder meeting. And one of the key votes there was on another leader of the bank, Lee Raymond, who has held the role of lead independent director at J.P. Morgan Chase. Wait a minute. Lee Raymond used to be the president of uh, ExxonMobil. Exactly. Lee Raymond, former ExxonMobil CEO and one of the chief architects of the climate denial and deception campaign. He's been on the board of Chase for over three decades. He's been in the lead independent director role for nearly 20 years, which means he's only second to Jamie Dimon in his power on the bank's board. This has been a fact that's gone little notice for a long time. But this year, there was a tremendous campaign to pressure Chase to remove Lee Raymond from this role in light of Chase's role as the world's largest funder of fossil fuels. And to kick Lee Raymond off the board. His role was actually demoted in response to that pressure. Although he's not been removed from the board entirely, Chase has removed him from that lead independent director role and signaled that he will be transitioning off the board in the near future. And so that's a a big win for activists and investors that have put pressure on the bank. I remember when he got this mind-boggling 
I think it was over a hundred million dollar golden parachute when he left ExxonMobil. It was just incredible. I had no idea he had a side gig here with J.P. Morgan Chase. But but Jamie Dimon presents himself as a liberal. He's been talking about, you know, we need to care for the average working person. And, you know, he's a big advisor to Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Has he been just BSing us all this time? You know, J.P. Morgan Chase and as well as many of the other major U.S. banks do often talk a good game on climate change and you know, all signaled their support of the Paris Agreement, and that was signed in 2015. But mm-hmm. if you actually look at their investment portfolios, their actions do not match their rhetoric, and certainly the investments that the bank makes does not match with Jamie Dimon's professed concern for climate action. In the years since the Paris Agreement was signed, just in those four years, J.P. Morgan Chase has funneled about $269 billion into the coal, oil, and gas industry. And that's significantly more than any other bank in the world. But, you know, this is a problem that really is actually centered around the big U.S. banks. The Banking on Climate Change report looks at banks from all over the world. And the four largest bankers of fossil fuels in the world are J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Citi, Bank of America. Those are all U.S. headquartered banks, and they are the four largest funders of fossil fuels in the world. And so certainly their actions and investments do not match their rhetoric. To what extent is that because they are funding fracking in the United States? It's been this absolute over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, but particularly since Halliburton really took this to scale in the late 1990s and early 2000s, that fracking has just exploded. And if fracking is a big piece of that, with this collapse in demand for fossil fuel products as a result of the coronavirus, I don't know what percentage of fracking is producing oil versus gas, and I'm assuming that a lot of that gas is going to residential heating, but how at risk are these four big American banks as, you know, these small fracking companies, there's literally thousands of them in the United States, are going bankrupt? Yeah, absolutely. This is in a large part being driven by the fracking boom over the past decade. And certainly that fracking boom has been propped up by Wall Street, you know, really providing endless amounts of capital and easy access to lending um, in order to support that unprofitable business. And it is important to note that over the past decade, fracking has never been a profitable business. Companies use neat accounting tricks to continue going from well to well, even when those are not profitable. And the easy access to capital and lending from big Wall Street banks has enabled them to do so. J.P. Morgan Mm -hmm. Chase and Wells Fargo are actually the two largest bankers of fracked oil and gas in the world, as shown in the Banking on Climate Change report. And so, yeah, that's a big part of it. Those two banks have really been at the center of fueling. uh, So to what extent is this presenting a crisis to these banks? Yeah, well, J.P. Morgan Chase actually noted in one of its recent financial filings that it was prepared to write off several billion dollars in losses from oil and gas loans not going to be repaid. So it's already starting to hurt some of these big banks that are way too leveraged in the oil and gas space. And certainly, I think that underscores the need for a transition away from financing fossil fuels. And hopefully they're thinking the same thing, although they're probably thinking, oh, it'll come back. Everything, you know, happy times will be here again. We're talking with Ben Cushing with the Beyond Dirty Fuels campaign of the Sierra Club. And Ben, 
What is the call for action that you are putting out to members of the Sierra Club? Is it move your accounts away from uh, J.P. Morgan Chase and these other three big banks that are financing fossil fuels, or is it a call to shareholder activism, or is it what specifically? How do you? What's your takeaway here? How do you want people to react to this? Well, I do want to note that although these big banks are continuing to you know finance huge amounts of fossil fuels, there have been some recent wins that are important to note. So we've been working with indigenous leaders in Alaska over the last couple of years to pressure all of these big banks not to finance drilling in the Arctic and the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge specifically, which was opened up a couple of years ago by Republicans uh, to drilling for the first time. And so we've been advocating for these big banks to not fund Arctic drilling and to stay out of the Arctic refuge. And actually, just in the last few months, we've actually seen great success and a lot of momentum on that effort. So Goldman Sachs, Citi, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Morgan Stanley have all taken action. And now Bank of America is the only big U.S. bank that has not taken this step. And so we're asking Sierra Club members and activists all over to send a message to Bank of America to not fund Arctic drilling as well. You got it. Ben, we're out of time, but uh, great work you're doing there with the Sierra Club. This Hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Thank you. Ben Cushing, the campaigner with the uh, Beyond Dirty Fuels campaign. Thanks, Ben. Great talking with you. Thanks so much. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.